You're listening to Japanese Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington. Good morning. What a joy to be with you on this Sunday after Easter. May your prayer be that soon we are together in person. I wanted to share to you with you today about this encounter Thomas has, but the two different kinds of Thomases that we have. Now, to start with, I'd say that growing up, I was taught that Thomas doubted and Thomas doubted Jesus, and therefore no one should be like Thomas. I just believed that. It, it, it came inside me, and I lived with it. Now, first, let me be clear that this is not a sermon against Jesus' treatment of doubt in this passage. I think there's a whole lot to explore there. Those who have not seen yet believed is powerful, and there's something there. But today, what I would like to focus on is what I would like to call the early conditional Thomas, versus the late transformed Thomas in our passage. Scripture gives us uh, about a week's time in that transformation. And I think this speaks to the world as we are currently this week after Easter. I guess I'll begin by saying that the birth of this question for me is in how large doubting Thomas loomed during my faith formation years. It was so large that I couldn't even see the conditional parts of his if and then reaction to the disciples telling them they saw Jesus. It's as, if, it's as though Thomas was saying that the world, that the work of his own believing in Jesus was entirely on Jesus and the work that Jesus would have to do. You would have to convince me, Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Your expertise, your education doesn't matter as much as what I think after reading a few articles, a few weeks, a few hours. I've done my research. You convince me. How could I not see this, right? I just kept thinking, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. Never thought about the transactional part of early Thomas. Especially since we do that all the time. Jesus, if you get me through this, Jesus, if you get me this job, I will tithe, and, and I mean it this time. And I think we Americans tend to measure everything in this very zero-sum calculation, right? If you do this for me, I will do that for you. What's in it for me? And we see it in how fractured our world is now. What's in it for me? Is, is, is so embedded in everything, this conditional relationship that we now live in, that we refuse to come to reason even when wrong, and that is praised, especially when we win. I saw a woman say, doctors can line up all around my block and I will still not vaccinate my children because I have done my research. Or people who say, guys, just locker room talk. Or people who say, everyone's entitled to make mistakes. Everyone is entitled to a mulligan every once in a while. This is, this is Mike Lee, Representative Mike Lee from Utah, talking about the speech the former president gave about inciting an insurrection. Ah, it's fine. He's a good one. We have witnessed presidential candidates on national television boldly say they have never been wrong. We have seen and heard one candidate 
even say that he has never asked for forgiveness from God, ever. And I know we have all seen, seen, or even fallen for believing a crazy conspiracy theory someone has told us somewhere because we would rather believe a conspiracy than believe facts that go against what we want to believe. It's as if we want to be able to control everything about our faith. If then. To me, that is a problem. Because it seems to me that early Thomas wants to decide the conditions he has for believing in Jesus. Jesus himself will have to come to my living room for me to consider changing my mind. Doctors could light up around the block and I will still not vaccinate my children. It's your job, Jesus. Of course, this is very convenient, convenient because when we set the conditions, we're free to decide what they are. We're free to decide the rules of the game and we're free to change them whenever we want. Which might be the reason why there is endless forgiveness for me and my own and very little change and much less transformation for us and our country. It is really as though we're saying, I will not change my mind unless Jesus himself shows up. And then I get to decide if that is actually Jesus or not. That attitude, let's call it early Thomas, has us divided to the point that we refuse often to entertain even the possibility that I might be wrong or worse, that the other side that I dislike so very much might be right. This is so bad that it leaves us open to be manipulated into being divided and to continuously agree to hurt each other even if we have to go against our own interests. Voters do this all the time. We vote against our own interests just so that the other side doesn't win. Legislators vote against their own proposals if it looks like suddenly it's going to benefit the other side as well, politically as well. Is that a way to live our faith? Is, is early Thomas with his if and then a good way to live our faith. So yes, in that sense, I agree. Don't be like early Thomas. If we begin in that space, then surrender to Jesus becomes a necessity. Because in this world, there are winners and losers. Somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. Jesus is stronger than me, so Jesus wins and I lose. I have to surrender to Jesus because there's always a winner and a loser. But can you remember a time when you were glad to surrender to anything? Nobody surrenders worthfully. Nobody's glad to be forced to surrender and you are only forced to surrender. Nobody gladly surrenders. Nobody's happy to lose. You only do that after bitter struggle kicking and screaming, and once you know that there's absolutely nothing you could do, then it is that you're forced to surrender. Can you think of anyone ever who, when forced to surrender, 
begins a process of deepening relationship with the one who forced them to surrender. Now, in online and, and in our teaching, right, somebody would say, well, the difference is that when Jesus makes you surrender is for your own good, is for your own interests. But I still don't like it. Now, fortunately, there is a way out, and let's call it the late Thomas way out. That path is radically different than the normal way out. The late Thomas way out asks that we be free from the winner and loser, zero-sum, transactional relationship we so love. But this path is no easy path, especially since we have always been taught that we need to surrender to Jesus. I surrender all, as the hymn says. But is that what scripture says? I run a search on this, and, and here are some of the verses I get about surrendering to Jesus. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. Romans 12, right, is that to surrender? Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who lives, but God who lives in me. Or maybe Matthew 16, 24 and 25, pick up your cross and follow me. Or Mark 10, 28, we left everything for you, Jesus. Or Mark 8, 35, for whoever wishes to lose their life, to save their life will lose it. Are those surrendered? Is that, because these are the searches, these are the results I get of, of what does it mean to surrender to Jesus? Those are the passages. But is that what those scripture passages are saying? Surrender. Because those, those, and you could look it up yourself. You could pause this and, and, and look up surrender to Jesus Bible verses and see what you find. But I have to tell you, I do not see surrender in any of those verses at all. Nor do I see that in our passage for today. Far from it, when I see what I see in these passages are bold leaps forward to our love, a leap, <clears throat> a leap that is fully embracing and solidly rooted in love. It's so much so that before whatever happened before just doesn't matter anymore because love is so much better than whatever came before, but that is not surrender. Right? I mean, I know surrendering is so embedded in our faith formation that we might be tempted to argue that we are surrendering because we're saying no to other things. We are surrendering to our previous life. We love our surrender language. But I want to ask you again, I encourage you to think about this. How often do you think about the fact that by definition, to surrender is to recognize that the enemy is too strong for us to keep fighting. Now, this is important because it points to an important question. Is surrendering to Jesus the only good kind of surrendering there is? Because all of the others are bad ones, right? I want to keep asking this question because to surrender is not to be transformed. To surrender is not to love. It is simply to acknowledge that the other side is just 
too strong and it makes no sense to keep fighting. And I want to focus on this because I don't think Jesus wants us to surrender. I think that if Jesus wanted us to surrender, he would have come down from the cross when the priest said, look at him, if he were strong, he would come down to the cross. If Jesus wanted us to surrender, he would have come down from the cross and kicked the Romans out of Israel because he is the stronger. He demands surrender. But fortunately, there is a way out, out of our divisiveness and lack of trust, but it isn't to surrender, at least not in the meaning of that word. And I think the late Thomas in this passage and his encounter with Jesus illustrate this very well. It seems clear to me that when Thomas comes to his Jesus moment, there are no signs of surrendering in the passage. That passage doesn't show us frustration or pain or regret or any other emotion or sign that goes with surrendering. Thomas doesn't even bother to check the wounds as Jesus offers, and that is, that is, those are the requirements he had. That is completely different than surrendering. Thomas is so taken by love and his full embrace of Jesus that his conditions, the conditions he had set for believing in Jesus, just don't matter anymore. It isn't that he can no longer enforce his conditions, which would be surrendering, right? I, I can't do that anymore because you won't let me. It's, and Jesus gives him a chance to do that. Jesus gives him a chance to enforce his conditions, but he just doesn't care about them anymore. That's not surrender, that's love. Still, I know our minds might still be wanting to find surrender in all of this. I know surrendering to Jesus is part of the core of our preaching, of our teaching, and our learning of faith in our American Christian faith. You know, I, I search for what, for what this means, right? What does it mean to surrender to Jesus? And here are some of the quotes of the thousands of surrendering to Jesus things I found. One is, the question is, what does it mean to surrender to Jesus? The answer, this world is a battleground. It's a fallen world. We need to surrender to Jesus. It went on to say, there are different levels of surrender, all of which affect our relationship with God. Everything is a war. The act of surrendering is very difficult for those who realize that the battle is lost. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are duty-bound to Him. That was another quote. And it goes on like that for hundreds of pages. We love the surrender language because it fits our culture so very well. We like listening to the strong. We are attracted to strength. We want leaders who are decisive. We want leaders who worry less about being right or wrong and more about making a choice right now, right here, being decisive. Worry about right or wrong later or, or better. If you're decisive, you would know right away 
We like might makes right, even if we don't want to admit it. But is that what Jesus taught us? Is that what scriptures say about our relationship with Jesus? Of course, saying yes to Jesus means saying no to a lot of other things. But is a surrendering, is that a surrendering? Or is it a stepping forward in love? When we surrender, when we're forced to surrender, we're also forced to say no to a lot of other things. We are forced to live under the thumb of the stronger. When we step forward in love, we want to say no to other things. When we know we are loved back, we want to not do the other things. But it doesn't mean that those other things are no longer appealing. It also doesn't mean that we, will, that we will be kept, that we will be forced from doing those, which will be the case in surrender. And it is in our language, right? This is why hell is so important in this language, because that's what keeps us. Jesus, in essence, is being an earthly, powerful one who says, if you don't listen to me and completely surrender, I will send you to jail and punish you. So the more I think about this, the more embrace fits better than surrender. And think about the beginning of falling in love. When you first fall in love, nothing else matters, right? Is that what we feel like at the beginning of surrendering? So what if part of the message in this passage is don't be like conditional Thomas. Because conditional Thomas has to surrender because someone has to lose. There's always a winner and a loser. If then, right? But instead, what if an important part of this passage is aspire to be like embracing Thomas? Love so deeply that who you were before with your conditions, your mistrust, your disbeliefs and more just doesn't matter anymore. That is the way out. That is the freedom. That is what Thomas sees in his Jesus moment. Hallelujah, Christ is risen and he did. But don't surrender to Jesus. Love him by, boying, by boldly going forward in love. Do your best to be like Thomas and love so deeply that being wrong is no longer embarrassing or to be feared or to be avoided as though it was the worst thing that could happen. Instead, the fear of being wrong is just forgotten because love is so much better. Step forward in love toward Jesus. Don't be like conditional Thomas. Be like loving Thomas. Amen.